Hello, and welcome to the CFA Society San Francisco podcast, where we interview and discuss current topics with leading members of the Bay Area investment community. This week, Tanya Subatang, Senior Membership Manager with CFA Society San Francisco, sits down with Nicholas Borst, CFA, Vice President and Director of China Research at Seafarer Capital Partners. Listen in as they discuss all things China, including recent economic policies, opportunities for investors, and stock volatility. Hi, Nick. It's great to see you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. You know, I was just thinking how crazy it is to think that the last time we spoke with each other was actually back in October of 2022, which was really only a few months ago when you had moderated our panel of speakers on the US and China economy. So it's great to have you back. Yeah, it feels like a lot has changed since then. That was sort of, I think, one of the low points in terms of people's perspective on the Chinese economy. And as I just mentioned, there's been a lot that's happened since then. So eager to dive into that. Yeah. And who better else than to speak with you and to our listeners? who are not familiar with your professional background, you have a very deep knowledge when it comes to China's economy and U.S.-China investment. You're the vice president and director of China Research at Seafair Capital Partners. Um, You're also a fellow at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and you've actually worked and studied in mainland China for a number of years. So I am so thrilled to have you and really have this opportunity to get your thoughts and the current events and definitely get a little bit of a deeper insights. So I'm so excited to get started. Yeah, well, thanks again for having me and look forward to our conversation. So going right in, why have Chinese stocks and investor sentiment towards China have been so volatile recently? Yeah, if you look back uh, over both 2021 and 2022, you know, Chinese asset prices, not just stocks, have been so volatile. Huge ups, huge downs, wild swings, based off news. And really, I think at the core of it, if you kind of step back and look at it, I think there's two main issues that the market and investors are trying to wrap their head around. Number one is where is China's domestic policy environment? Has that changed? Is China still committed to growth or is it much more focused on state control over the economy? And so every piece of news that either confirms or negates those viewpoints on what's going on in the domestic policy environment leads a lot of people to kind of shift their perceptions of of where China is going domestically. The second point that I think the market is really trying to wrap its head around is what is the international environment that China is facing? You know, will China continue to be integrated in the global economy? Will China face restrictions from the U.S. and other countries that are worried about national security issues with China? And again, as as news comes out that, you know, confirms or denies people's prior beliefs on this, we see these huge shifts in, in security prices and overall sentiment. So I think that's the, the source of volatility. To me, I think when you step back and you look at these two issues from more of a historical perspective, it's pretty clear where the trend lines are going. So I'd say since around 2015, we've seen a decisive shift in Chinese economic policymaking under Xi, President Xi, to have a greater role for state-owned enterprises, to have more control over private enterprises, and for the government to play a greater role in planning the economy. So that's not going anywhere. I think those trend lines are fully set. And I think if investors understand that, 
uh, they'll have a better sense of, of where things are going and not be as reactive to kind of whatever the latest headline of the day is. On the second issue, I think the trend lines are equally clear. So if you look at China's international relations, its relationship with the U.S., again, that's clear that we're, we're settling in for kind of a long period of, of tension, conflict, not necessarily military conflict, but kind of a long-running economic conflict between the U.S. and China. It's one of the things we discussed on the panel in October, just this wide range of different economic restrictions and sanctions from the U.S. targeting Chinese companies, it's having a major impact in a lot of industries. I think one of the most notable ones is, is semiconductors. So, you know, a lot of the volatility is, is kind of the day-to-day headlines, people interpreting whether China is shifting this way or that way. But I think if you step back a little bit, to me, it becomes pretty clear that, you know, China is headed towards more state oversight over the economy a more tense relationship with the rest of the world. That doesn't mean that, you know, there's no room for private business in China or China's kind of going back to uh, more kind of communist era in its economic planning. But it does mean that, you know, the environments that we thought about in, of China in the past, you know, past two, three decades of, of rapid economic growth and kind of more laissez-faire approach to economic policy, that has firmly shifted away towards these new trend lines that I described. So do recent policy shifts indicate that Beijing is returning to a more or pragmatic economic policy? Yeah, this is why I think it's so great for us to have this follow-up conversation because, you know, we spoke, the the panel we did was in October and a lot of these big policy shifts had just barely started to get underway or hadn't even been announced yet. So kind of three big areas, real estate, but China kind of completely backed off its real estate crackdown. You know, they were pushing this hard deleveraging for the entire real estate sector. It was putting a lot of real estate developers on the verge of bankruptcy, kind of dragging down the entire economy. There's been a shift on the COVID policy. So for three years, China's had this very draconian COVID policy with lockdowns that were impacting you know, consumption and travel and investment. You know, that that turned on its heel almost overnight and was somewhat chaotically abandoned uh, starting in November. And now, you know, we're in a period where virtually all the restrictions that China had in place have been abandoned as of the end of January. And then third was, you know, this crackdown on the private sector that we've seen. So they've somewhat eased up uh, on some of these tech focused restrictions that have really damaged a lot of uh, China's tech champions. So, you know, on these three main policy areas, real estate, COVID, dealing with the private sector, there has been a big shift uh, over the past couple of months. Now there's this like long running debate of what is what is behind that shift? Is it really kind of a return to the past, a more pragmatic approach to the economy? You might see that from a certain perspective, but I think to me, when I look at it, I, I see it somewhat differently. I, these three policies were all very damaging for China and for the Chinese economy. Um, from the outside, seemed completely unsustainable, you know, really threatening to push the economy off a cliff. And so from my perspective, it's really unsustainable policies finally being unwound, stepping back from the edge, kind of pivoting before before there was some real serious economic damage done. Um, and I think a lot of it w- was, was done by necessity. You know, they were sort of, their hand was forced, you know, COVID had done such damage to the Chinese economy. Uh, you 
had private businesses starting to shut down. Foreign factories in China were threatening to close. People were protesting in the streets about COVID lockdowns and the fact that the case numbers in China were already increasing. You know, the the hand of the government more or less was forced, and they had to to make a change on these policies. So, you know, I think it's great from the short term perspective that the Chinese economy will undoubtedly recover a bit after some of these policies have been abandoned. I think the IMF is now projecting that China is going to grow a bit over five percent next year, which would be you know a healthy recovery from the low single digits we saw this year or 2022 rather. But the, these changes in policies, I think, are more short term and tactical, and in response to real kind of economic distress and the longer two trends that I mentioned er- earlier. That is kind of the focus on increasing control on the economy domestically and the tensions with the U.S., those two longer-term trends aren't going away anytime soon. So I think I'm fairly certain that the overall direction of policy is not going to change radically, even if we were seeing some short-term adjustments and recalibrations. So what are some of the underappreciated trends are you seeing in Chinese companies? Yeah, I, you know, I think even though the, the overall message I, I've been sharing about the Chinese economy and, and the policy environment is relatively negative, I think there are some some positive things to, to focus on and some underappreciated appreciated trends, as you mentioned. You know, one one thing just to, to frame it is, you know, my opinion is that investing in China should never be a, a bet one way or the other on government policy. It's not about reading the political tea leaves. I don't think anyone outside of the Chinese government is, is able to really do that. It's so non-transparent and opaque. If you look at the kind of longer history of, of private business in China, you know, particularly over the past few decades, there's always this tension between what the government wants and what private businesses are doing, I think it really makes sense to try to find companies in China that can succeed in a variety of different environments that aren't as susceptible to these political cycles, who have such strong competitiveness that it, it really doesn't matter whatever Beijing is focusing on the minute they focusing on at the moment, they really have the ability to, to succeed and thrive in a variety of different environments. So, you know, just to, at the start, I would say what I'm always looking for is, is companies that aren't as dependent on these kind of fickle political wins as as we've discussed uh, more recently. You know, second, I think one thing that is a bit underappreciated is just that there's been some improvements in, in investing in China and Chinese corporate governance that I don't think necessarily get a lot of attention. So China's capital markets are more open than they ever have been. It's easier for foreign investors to bring money in and out of the economy than it ever has been. That doesn't mean it's perfect. That doesn't mean that there aren't still restrictions, but it has gotten dramatically better over the past 10 years. And so that's a real improvement and makes it, you know, makes our life easier as investors. Currently, I think there's been a real shift for a lot of Chinese companies to start focusing on shareholder return. So more Chinese companies are paying dividends, dividend payout ratios have increased, and some Chinese companies are now doing pretty substantial buybacks. Now, these dividend rates and and these buybacks certainly aren't the levels that we see in, in the US or Europe, but I do think it's beginning to mark a change and a shift towards better governance in a lot of Chinese companies and a more of a focus on shareholder return. And then, you know, the last point, and I think potentially the most interesting to me is, you know, I I believe that the best Chinese companies will not be limited to China alone. So, you know, there may be these ups and downs and fluctuations in in policy in in China. The Chinese domestic economy may slow further, but I think the best Chinese companies are going to be able to grow 
overseas to expand abroad and really tap into the global market. So I'm excited to look for Chinese companies that are globally competitive, that are sophisticated in building international corporate governance structures, and are really nuanced in the way that they navigate a lot of the political and international considerations that go along with expanding into overseas markets. So, you know, regardless of of what people think about China's domestic economic trajectory, I think there will be some Chinese companies that are able to grow outside of China and really become globally competitive. So that's really one of the things I'm looking for. And one of the things I, I think is most exciting about looking at investing in China these days. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for that great update and insights. I think many of the listeners will definitely take it and kind of see for themselves exactly what we're talking about. So it was a pleasure talking to you as always. And I look forward to catching up again, hopefully in a couple of months. Yeah, great. Thank you, Tanya. And yeah, I hope we can do this again soon. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of the CFA Society San Francisco podcast. We hope you enjoyed the engaging discussion. Please stay tuned for more episodes of this podcast published on the last Thursday of the month in our newsletter and through the CFA Society San Francisco podcast channel, available through most major podcast apps. 